This week's guest is author, writer and public intellectual Thomas Chatterton Williams. Thomas is a columnist at Harper's and the author of two books which I found profoundly influential on my thinking and which changed my mind in important ways. The first book was Losing My Cool, Love, Literature and a Black Man's Escape from the Crowd. I really cannot recommend it enough as an excellent read. The second book is the one which catapulted Thomas into a global reputation as a cultural commentator, particularly in relation to race, and that book was Self-Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race, which was published in 2019. The book engages in a conscious exploration of the concept of race, one that pervades our everyday so profoundly and that we all take for granted. It's a conceptually, philosophically, and for many people, a personally challenging book. And I think everybody should read it precisely for that reason. Thomas is a deeply impressive individual and fundamentally that's precisely what he is, an individual, somebody who is not interested in consensus but takes the time to formulate his own perspectives and to share them as honestly and as candidly as he can, even in the knowledge that they may frustrate or upset or irritate some people. He's intellectually authentic, and I admire him very much for that. I hope that you enjoy this conversation. I certainly did. Sometimes it can be a disappointment when you finally have the chance to have a conversation with someone who has had an influential impact on your thinking. But this time, I'm really glad to say it wasn't. I think I found your work originally through social media, um, which is, I suppose, a very modern story. But I mean, I'd like to say it happened in some deeper way, but it it was Twitter, I think. And it was after that point that I read Self-Portrait. And then I went back and I read Losing My Cool, which was a book that I just felt um, profoundly affected by and really interested in. But obviously... Identity jumps out so clearly as a theme of your work. You had such a a self-conscious exploration uh, in Losing My Cool of friction against an identity that you, your younger self, was trying to create and it's not quite fitting. And then I think deciding eventually to part with it. So can you talk a bit about what it is about identity that's so central to your work? That's a good question because I'm writing critically of identity and yet I'm writing constantly about identity and so some people will say well you know it's funny that the people who are against you know identity politics or 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 race being the central you know um, source of meaning in people's lives can't seem to shut up about it that's the kind of critique that um, sometimes is thrown my way in crude ways and sometimes in more sophisticated ways but I think that um, the reason why I write about identity so much is not because um, my ideal would be to have a world where we keep writing about identity, but because, you know, um, it's foisted on us so much. And I think that there's ways of thinking about it that are um, more rational than others. And so I've tried to ruthlessly kind of apply um, rational criticisms to the assumptions, prejudices, biases um, that I was brought up with that seemed normal to me 
and that uh, as I've worked on creating myself and worked on, um, I guess, uh, uh, achieving a perspective, uh, uh, you know, as, as that kind of process has, has gone on in my adult years, I've, um, I've rejected a lot of what I was, um, what I was born into. I, I, I don't like the idea of merely reproducing that which you're born into. And I mean, where do you think that awareness of constructed identity came from? Because you seem to have had it quite young. And the way you write about it in Losing My Cool suggests that it came to you first more as a series of feelings and experiences than a kind of systemic awareness. But you did seem to have it young. Um, well, yeah, intuitions. Um, I also was very lucky to have a father who um, was skeptical about... Um, merely reproducing abstract categories and was a sociologist by training and so kind of um, gave me one thing that I think of as a gift which not everybody does uh, um, consider a gift which was that uh, we didn't belong to real we didn't really belong to groups um, we had our family we associated with friends but my parents had moved very far away from the communities that they were raised in in part, this was because they were an interracial couple um, very early on in this, uh, in, in that even being um, something that was legal in many states in America. They got together about three years after the law passed Loving v. Virginia that, that made so-called racial integrity uh, laws um, illegal. So, you know, my parents kind of moved away from the prejudices of their own families and communities as a way of protecting themselves. And that kind of made us a, that made us a like an island unto ourselves, and I think that you know the feeling of standing alone and choosing who you want to be a part of, what community you want to be a part of, as opposed to simply belonging because you were born into it. I think that those were were, were gifts that my father gave me before I was able to realize it, but it always made me a bit skeptical of the tribes that I ended up being slotted into in my adolescence. Um, you know, I wanted very much to belong to some of these tribes, but I think I always had a bit of one foot outside of them. Mm. I guess it sort of made me think about constructing an individual identity, not in a kind of militant individualist way, but sort of figuring out who you are as separate from or to whatever milieu in which you're trying to insert yourself. And I'm wondering if that action or series of actions is becoming less possible than maybe it used to be. Hmm. I mean, there is an extraordinary pressure, um, but I think there probably always was. I, it probably is, uh, in some ways, I think that the extraordinary um, changes that have happened with technology, as much as they uh, impose a kind of conformity of thought, they also expand the number of people and milieu that you can have access to. It was probably much harder in the past when you didn't have the ability to get outside of um, the Irish town you were born into or the New Jersey suburb you were stuck in because there were no, you know, tools of telecommunication. Uh, you couldn't necessarily know that there were people overseas that we're interested in the same things as you. So I, I, I'm basically an optimist. I think that things can be a lot better and that there are a lot of tools we have at our disposal to make things better. But it's true that there is a kind of trend towards groupthink, tribalism and conformity that I find very disconcerting now. For sure. I mean, I suppose thinking about it in relation to losing my cool in particular, 
but also just, you know, to anyone who's young, there's an enormous disincentive toward individual self-discovery. And a huge incentive, I think, towards performatively slotting yourself into a group and acting as though you've got there through this intense discovery of understanding rather than a normal psychological need to fit in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, some of this, you know, people, uh, another kind of common criticism is like, what is really new? There's always been this pressure, you know, um, this is just human nature. I think what's particularly new and disturbing about this um, moment is also what I was just speaking about that makes it kind of, that makes me hopeful and optimistic, which is that these these technological tools are very powerful and kind of, they, they exacerbate uh, tendencies that have always existed. So um, pressures are exponentially magnified um, on the basis of online you know, peer pressure that penetrates your home in ways that in the past, you know, you wouldn't have had that kind of source of freedom, but you also wouldn't have had the world uh, coming into your into your home through your pocket at all times and monitoring you and you wouldn't have to perform your identity kind of 24-7. I remember even when, you know, in Losing My Cool, I write about the, the pressure to perform a kind of black masculinity. But I had a respite from that when I did come home and I could kind of let the... Even if I wasn't aware it was a performance, I could kind of loosen up and I could be a different way in a different context. And I think that that's harder and harder to do now that we're constantly monitoring ourselves and each other um, around the clock through technology. I think, though, that you wrote really in a very profound way in that book about the slow process of coming to realize that you're laboring intensively to create something that isn't right for you. But then you have to do all of this uncomfortable work of deconstructing that identity. And I guess having none and trying to find or build a new one. Isn't it easier to just stick with the friction and not change? Yeah, I think it probably is the path of least resistance. I think a lot of people... And I don't mean this in a condescending way, but, you know, maybe a lot of people haven't felt the need to, but a lot of people haven't actually um, taken apart their identities and tried to interrogate what they have actually chosen and what means the most to them and what might be improvable or what might be a hindrance. I think a lot of people kind of, you know, it's a ready-made kind of outfit or clothing that you step into the world with. Um, so there's no doubt that it's harder to construct yourself, but the good thing about constructing yourself and choosing what you really want and who you really want to be with is that I think it's actually much more gratifying. I, I certainly am biased, but I couldn't imagine actually, um, simply staying where I grew up, uh, without at least testing other parts of the world to see if I might like them better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think everyone, to to an extent, can relate to what you said there. But I think I'm very conscious when talking about race that the context of the US is a unique and discrete history and culture. And I think Europe and European territories differ, not, not that they're any better or worse in terms of how they understand or discuss race, but just that they are, they are different. W to what extent do you think coming from mixed heritage sort of obliged you to have these conversations with yourself? Because I know uh, perhaps less so in the US, maybe more so if you're born here in London or somewhere like Ireland that's very predominantly white, you can't just automatically 
slot in, I would imagine, in the same way. Well, yeah, it is different in the U.S. because um, I think it's much different in the U.S. than it is in France. I can't quite speak to the United Kingdom, but where I live now in France, for example, there would be much more pressure to define myself as what they call Métis, which would be a mixed category that actually has its own kind of identity. Whereas in America, because of the history of slavery and because of the history of laws of hypo-descent and what are in common parlance referred to as, you know, the customs of the one-drop rule, um, there is an enormous elasticity to the idea of what is black. And I don't think that it's very difficult, uh, should you, you know, should you want to belong to the black community, physical appearance doesn't really play an enormous role in that. There is, of course, colorism. There is, uh, you know, there is pressure to um, prove that you're not um, thinking you're better than other people because of having light skin or things like that. And there's also, um, you know, there's internalized racism that does prioritize light eyes and certain hair texture and, and, and light skin. That's all a, a, a factor in black life in America. But I do think that, you know, especially when I was growing up, the idea that there was a real mixed race identity was not really present in my community. Um, if you said you were black and you had some black ancestry, uh, I mean, the white kids didn't think you were white and the black kids uh, had a lot of you know, variety in their social group. So I didn't really feel like I was in two worlds. I felt like I had a white mom and a black dad if that makes sense. It's really different than some, some other mixed people's experience that I've subsequently come to know. But I felt, my brother and I felt that we were black and we had a white mom. Obviously, self-portrait was kind of born of that, or of a profound change in that view, in your identifying that way. And I know you've gone through this a million times and you must be so tired of it. But for people who hear the phrase, race is a construct, and don't really know what those words mean, what they refer to. Can you talk a bit about it and your own change of mind in that respect? Well, sure. I mean, I think a lot of us pay lip service to the idea that race is a construct, that it doesn't have biological, scientific uh, reality that's significant in any way. I mean, we have we look different from each other. We have physical characteristics that, you know, oftentimes track to geographical places of origin, but those don't constitute distinct human races. Most scientists agree that the overwhelming majority of scientists would say that, and most people certainly would adhere to that way of speaking in polite company. Um, with that said, we live and behave as though, you know, these differences actually do mean something much more than, um, than simply being left-handed or simply having, you know, brown hair as opposed to blonde hair. We act as though there are racial differences and that there are color lines that can't be crossed. And, you know, I even really, you know, I, as I was just saying, I grew up in a way where I lived with the paradox of having a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant mother in my own home. Um, and really not thinking very much of that and just thinking that I was black because a drop of black blood makes you black and that my kids would be black because they would still have a drop of black blood. And it was only when I was 29, 30 and I was married to, and I am still married to a, um, a blonde haired, blue eyed, white skinned French woman who I began to realize was colored similarly to my mother, that I realized there was the possibility of having a child that would really um, not present even a little bit, even ambiguously, is physically black. 
And it really was that uh, when, when my daughter was born in 2013, it was her physical presence in my life that really forced the, the fiction, the notion that race is a fiction to my consciousness in a way that my own life experiences had it prior to that. Um, and this began a process with which I realized that I, I didn't believe I had a white daughter. It wasn't that I thought that here I am with a white child um, and I'm a black man. It was that I thought if I'm a black man and I have a child that looks like this, what do these divisions really mean? How real are they? How porous are they? If these divisions don't capture us in our fullness, is it possible that they don't capture anyone really? It's just most people don't live this close to the margins where they have to see the um, contradictions uh, up close. And so I gradually, you know, I went down this, this path of really um, reassessing my, 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 my prejudices and my assumptions and premises. And I came to the conclusion that if race isn't real, and it's only socially constructed, then it could potentially be deconstructed and it could be, it, we could actually live as though it weren't, we don't have to keep reproducing this illusion if it's in fact an illusion. And I wanted to actually begin to live my life by those values. So I began to, you know, come to the conclusion that like I wouldn't check certain boxes, I wouldn't play this game. Um, and I would, I would try to, you know, teach my kids to be, you know, critical of, uh, of these ways that we um, make each other and ourselves white and black and everything else. And, and these, these, these ways of seeing, if racism is a, um, is a perceptive error, as some people argue, you know, I don't see you, I see this kind of veil of stereotype and myth uh, and, and ethnicity that falls between you, the individual, and me. If, if that is what it is, then I want to teach my kids to see through that veil, and I want to live my life that way. And it's hard because everything around you kind of, um, um, it's a carrot and stick situation. Everything around you either punishes you for thinking that way or incentivizes you not to think that way. Um, but for me, it's been really freeing. And I, and I do wonder if I would have been able to arrive at this kind of... Um, self-liberation had I stayed in America. I'm not sure. I, I, sometimes I think that it was really helpful to, to move abroad and to see the absurdity and the, the rigidness of some of the American racial logic um, from outside of it. Yeah. I guess in that way, your story a little bit echoes um, James Baldwin's, and actually I have some questions about him in a little while, but you talk there about incentives. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying about the kind of profound personal freedom that this has given you. And I imagine also a sense of duty towards your children. But there's definitely a social incentive not to do what you've done. Yeah. So when you were anticipating that... Professional incentive too sometimes. Absolutely. I mean, you've, you've been successful writing self-portrait. And because it's a great book and because it came at a great time and because it's something people needed to read. But that wasn't guaranteed. And when you sat down to write it, I'm sure, you know, you weren't guaranteed that it wasn't going to just get excoriating rejection from everybody who was angry about it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there was um, in the process of selling the book, there were a lot of uh, editors who felt that it was um, contradictory to the evolving consensus and that it therefore shouldn't necessarily be published. And I was lucky <laughs> to, you know, find um, a braver kind of editor who believed that, you know, his publishing house wasn't uh, in the business of consensus making, but was in the business of of of, of 
you know, quality writing. But, you know, it was certainly not um, something that a lot, it was not an argument that a lot of people want to hear at the time. And I was lucky that it came out in 2019 because I think that had another year elapsed, uh, it might not have, it would have been a different kind of reception. Do you think so? Yeah, I think that uh, it came out, you know, in October 2019. I think after May 2020, um, it would have been harder to, like, be on the cover of the New York Times book review and things like that that were still available to me prior to the racial reckoning that has been a real paradigm shift in the way that we're having these conversations. Maybe I just, you know, I, I, I got through the door before that door closed. Um, but certainly, you know, like, I'm pretty aware that, you know, there are a lot of... There are a lot of kind of professional incentives, including the incentive of having like nobody really criticize you in a in a you know in a belligerent way, or nobody that you, nobody in the mainstream criticizing you in a belligerent way uh, or an ad hominem way um, in, on social media, and like having the kind of the feeling of being uh, within the majority uh, that a lot of people do you know, it's lonely writing already. And so I think when you're writing from a minority position within a minority group, a lot of people just don't really want to do that. Um, and there's something I think in my own, it, you know, there's just something in my own psychological makeup that makes that a kind of acceptable position for me to be in. But um, I'm pretty aware that there are lots of prizes and things and fellowships that would be a lot easier to get um, were you making the arguments that uh, are um, on their face supposed to be the position of your identity group uh, if you're on the right side of history at, at this, in this day and age? Mm -hmm. Your experience there talking about publishers and how it might be different if you tried to write that book now is interesting because uh, I think it sort of reflects the wider media landscape every every kind of media, particularly legacy media, in that there is a kind of gatekeeper role there. Oh yeah. And publishers, papers and so on, they they don't publish, you know, what they think we want to read necessarily. They publish often what they think we should read. So there is a filtration process there around uh, what's appropriate for dissemination, as it were, and kind of constructing what's true. I mean, it and it's always been that way. But is, is this just kind of the backlash of an online landscape that's essentially unregulated? So many, it's like very complicated what all of what has changed because there is the fact that um, books and magazines and newspapers are competing for ever more limited attention spans with other forms of entertainment and media that didn't exist in the past. So it's a very competitive marketplace. There are the changing demographics of, you know, of the country, of the readership, of the potential readership. Then there is the kind of bully pulpit that has been massively strengthened uh, and amplified and extended through social media that I think is maybe the most important uh, factor, but it ties into a fear of losing revenue. You know, it's the, it, it, there's a kind of outsized influence that social media can play uh, the loudest voices um, get a lot of attention, and I think that these institutions and companies can feel that there's more consensus and agreement um, on some of these issues than there actually is. And so there's just a desire not to um, kick the hornet's nest and potentially, um, you know, potentially be 
be brought into a situation where you have to defend yourself. So the easiest thing to do is is to publish the views that don't uh, that don't stir up a lot of backlash or don't stir up the wrong kind of backlash. Mm. Um, I think this is a shame, but it's 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 all part of you know larger trends. It's very difficult to disentangle um, any one aspect from another. Also, you know, in America, the fact of Donald Trump being in in office was a big part of it, and I think it's continuing even now that he's out of office. But there was this sense that uh, our democracy itself is at stake. So the normal kind of liberal values of hearing both sides and being objective, and you know. Um, allowing uh, offensive speech, all these things were kind of considered, you know, nice in theory, but in practice, we're on the verge of fascism. And so we can't kind of entertain that. And the media saw itself as actually not just gatekeeping, but um, defending our society from from falling into the hands of, uh, of, of a fascist kleptocratic um, <laughs> <laughs> a dictatorship. I mean, this was actually the kind of rhetoric. And so, like, you know, you had, you know, places that used to, you know, pride themselves on being bastions of objectivity, suddenly introducing a real defined point of view. And anything that was considered outside of that point of view was considered potentially problematic in a way that I think has really altered the media landscape in lasting and damaging ways. Yeah. I mean, what what you're describing, it really kind of does it confirms that Nietzschean instinct that we live in a an era after which God essentially is would dead. Mm-hmm. I mean, that idea that media has a moral role that's not a passive one, yeah, by dint of its existence, but an active one through you know acting as a conduit, not not just for information, but for uh, selective interpretations around what's true or what's important and it's it's quite frightening really well yeah i just always worry about you know who decides what is what is right and wrong and i i have you know almost physical aversion to giving up to conceding too much of that role to people that appoint themselves you know the czars of our morality um I'd rather be exposed to a variety of viewpoints and make the decision for myself. But it's true, there's a kind of moral uh, imperative now in a lot of media institutions. And there's even a discussion about, you know, um, the fundamental nature of journalism itself, you know, and, and, and there's a new, new generation coming to power that's um, questioning and in some cases rejecting um, notions that had guided our journalism throughout the past century. So, I mean, it is a time of tumult and, and, and God does seem to be dead. The liberal God, the God of open debate, free expression, objectivity, that God is, if not dead, in, in, in his death throes, in her death throes. <laughs> um, I think one of the most interesting articulations of what you just spoke about is the, uh, obviously it has very traceable academic origins, but the relationship, particularly within journalism, of objectivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just as um, not no longer possible, but also as no longer an ideal toward which we should be striving. Right. Universalism and objectivity um, favor the status quo. And so, you know, we need actual active discrimination to right previous wrongs. And then the current discrimination uh, guarantees the need for future discrimination. And so it's a kind of 
juggling act where the balls can never come to rest because whenever the balls are resting it favors a power imbalance. I mean, this is really just depressing stuff, to be honest. <laughs> um, uh, I guess I was curious, when it comes to, uh, you make a lot of ethical arguments around why we should view race as a construct. And I think I think they're pretty convincing. But I would say that part of the, you know, if, if God is in its death throes, part of that is a sort of universal consequentialist logic, right? Like the idea that something is moral or otherwise based on the outcome for anyone who isn't familiar with that. And your approach seems to lean slightly more on maybe um, a virtue ethics uh, or a deontological approach for the philosophers. Um, which would you say that it is? Yeah, I, I don't think, I wouldn't be a consequentialist. I, I, that kind of scares me um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I don't think that trying to guarantee outcomes uh, is the way to go. I don't think that, you know, I do believe intent matters. I think that that kind of conversation gets you to think that only impact matters. Um, yeah, I, 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 I certainly favor the, the ontological approach you're talking about. Um, I think that we have to th think hard about what our values are. And we have to believe that um, actions matter, intent matters. Um, people are not, uh, individuals are not actually simply avatars of groups or larger historical tendencies. They are uh, discrete units within themselves that have to be, um, it's, 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 there is no shorthand for, for, for understanding and valuing and, and, and judging the individual. You have to actually, deal with the individual on his or her own terms. Um, and so I just, I, I, I really recoil from, from anything that kind of demeans the, the sovereignty of the individual, the dignity of the individual, the, the, um, that doesn't extend the benefit of the doubt to the individual. Just, you know, yesterday I was really disturbed by National Geographic magazine was tweeting about, you know, this race card project that they have an issue devoted to where in six words, people describe, or people just talk about race in six words and oftentimes about their own racial identity. And one young white woman, she said, you know, her quote had something to the effect of, you know, I'm ashamed of my race. And it had to do with the fact that her ancestors uh, seemed to be slave owners. But, uh, you know, I fundamentally recoil from that because she's equating the actions of her ancestors, even if they were normalized at the time, with an entire race that is grouped together based on ancestral lineage and physical attributes. And it seems to me an extraordinary injustice to extend that to, for example, my mother, um, who's a woman who spent her whole life, you know, um, you know, uh, being committed to civil rights, being married to a, to a black man, rejecting her own racist family members who had a problem with that, raising two sons she considered black, and even dealing with, you know, some of the grief of, of seeing one of her sons be subject to, you know, race-based police brutality. So the idea that she's a source of shame because of common eye color and, and you know, 
family lineage in, in the European continent. It just, it, it, it drives me crazy. And I'm really trying to push back against this tendency, but it's, to, to be honest, it does feel that you're kind of fighting the ocean or the wind or something like that. It's a, there is a larger movement towards this way of thinking, or at least this way of talking, that does seem to me in the short term not to be, um, not to be going anywhere. Mm. Why do you think it's become so, uh, so culturally appealing? Especially because I feel like most of this stuff is kind of exported or imported in the case of here, particularly from the context of America. And it is growing in Europe from that American way of thinking and speaking. That's true. We've saw this uh, in recent weeks. We saw this controversy in the Netherlands and Spain and some other European countries with the translation of um, the young black uh, American poet Amanda Gorman's best-selling poetry, and there was this argument that's new to most, if not all, European nations that um, the identity of the translator um, has to be taken into consideration and that uh, it should, on some essentialized level, it should match the authors. So only a black woman, not even a black man, can translate this uh, black woman, black American woman's poetry as though there's some type of, you know, common experience uh, that, a, that a young girl, young black girl in Los Angeles would have with a young black uh, descendant of immigrants in the Netherlands. I mean, it's, it's kind of strange. And the, this, the, tra the white translator in, um, in Spain, the Catalan translator who was booted from the project, I thought made a very valid point that it goes against everything literature is supposed to stand for, or art is supposed to stand for, which is um, that universal aspect of, uh, you know, of the human spirit that, uh, that transcends cultural and uh, even, even chronological barriers. You know, he said, you know, how am I supposed to translate Homer or Shakespeare if I you know, can only understand somebody who's a Catalan middle-aged man? And it's true. I mean, it would all break down if we really believed these things. So to, to part of your question, I think, is that why is this happening now? I don't think it's because we're all convinced that this is true. I think in some ways it's actually paradoxically a way of keeping the status quo intact. It's a kind of, it's a way that people can, even if they don't mean to do it so cynically, it's a way that people can kind of say the right things to, to fend off or preempt criticism. Um, you know, a white person can just like say that they're privileged and they can, you know, say that they don't understand this other experience and kind of nothing will change that way. You, we don't have to do the harder work of figuring out what exactly is going on, the texture of what's going on in each of our societies, what's different, you know? It's, yeah. it's kind of depressing. I mean, yeah. I just, I, I, my hope is that uh, it doesn't fully... Um, influence uh, European cultures. But I think in the UK, you're actually starting to move along the lines of America much more swiftly than on the continent. Yeah, well, things are certainly in flux. And um, there's a sense of tension and, and change, I think, particularly in the last year. So it, it'll be interesting to see what happens and the extent to which we mirror the kind of the context of the US. But there is this sense that we've taken this framework from a different culture with a different history and mm -hmm. sort of superimposed it in a way that just doesn't quite fit onto how we see this country and, and each other within it. And it's, it's, it's a stretch in some respects. And I think that isn't producing the type of good faith, truthful engagement 
we could benefit from. Mm -hmm. I think as well, I've been interested when talking with um, some British-born black writers in particular this year. A lot of them have kind of expressed a sense of not feeling any form specifically of national identity, which I think says a lot about sort of how integrated we are as opposed to how integrated we may feel that we are. Mm -hmm. And we may not be as much as we claim to be. And I know that my own husband has a white parent and a black parent and, and has had a kind of a long-term sense of displacement about where he fits and that he doesn't quite slot in anywhere in British society. Because obviously within the context of the US, as you say, you have the, the one-drop rule. Um, mm -hmm. But here, that's not the case. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that influences where things go. That kind of conversation is prevalent in France too, where you have the children of African and Arab immigrants, oftentimes in what are called banlieues, in these communities that are heavily informally segre segregated outside of the big cities, um, where they will be, you know, born in France, full French citizens, not immigrants. The only country they've ever been in is France, but they will say things like, um, oh yeah, I've never had a French friend or something like that. They won't consider that they themselves, they're, they're using French interchangeably with white. Uh, there's no French people in our school. Those things, it's kind of alarming to hear that way of talking and it's very sad because it means that there's quite a failure of, um, of making everyone feel that they have purchase within society. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think that that's exactly the same problem that exists in America. We have other problems, but uh, you know, the most kind of racialized group in America is also the group that has basically been there for just about as long as anybody else except for Native Americans. Um, most black Americans who are descendants of slaves have been in the country for far longer, centuries longer than most white people who immigrated later. Mm. Um, so that's a kind of way of, that's a way of feeling um, foreign in your own land that uh, I, I do think is, 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 an, is, is a palpable difference between the black American experience and, and the kind of racialized European um, black and brown experience. Even separate to race, I think, part of the kind of immigrant or emigrant experiences is, as you say, you have identities uh, foisted upon you in such a mild way, because, uh, for example, Ireland and the UK are so similar, but I kind of didn't feel like an Irish person until I moved here to London and my accent became obvious and, you know, people made comments about slight cultural differences. So I think, yeah, sometimes there is a kind of reactive response to not being able to fully pass, as it were. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that gets much harder if you physically appear different as well as kind of sound and behave differently. That reminds me of, I know I emailed you about it, but I honestly, since reading Losing My Cool, I think about this maybe once every two weeks. And the scene of you uh, and Playboy when you went to Dean and DeLuca to buy a baguette, which was, you know, you as a young man uh, <laughs> made identity crisis, I guess, um, realising that you, you didn't, this sort of very privileged by modern standards and complacent individual asked you to go to get uh, a baguette while they went to get some cheese. And you had this moment of not knowing what that was and trying to figure it out. 
and and then eating this sandwich that was made from the spaghetti and realizing that you had kind of closed yourself off from an experience of the world that was positive and varied. And that seemed like such a profound but but small moment, I guess, in your transcendence or your deconstruction of your previous identity. How did you go about finding a new one? And did you feel existentially <laughs> bereft? That's a great question. So the thing that the the baguette scene experience was kind of useful in showing me was that it was like a fork in the road moment. Like my friends and I hadn't really thought much about a lot of things. And one of them would be um, being open to other kinds of foods, just in a very simple way. Like the, 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 in the environment I grew up in, we weren't really um, curious about other, other food ways. And I began to think, you know, if I don't, if, if, if even something so simple as a kind of bread is something I haven't paid attention to or investigated or wondered more about, what else might be passing me by? And there's a kind of defensiveness that you can fall back into a posture of just making fun of the bread or, or making fun of the, the guy who knew what it was, um, saying something about it being, you know, effeminate or something because it's European. And you would just go away with your pride intact. Or there's a way of just kind of quieting that impulse and just like allowing someone else to introduce you to something that you hadn't known about and might even end up liking. And in that moment, I just felt that I really wanted to open myself to those types of situations. I, I, I was in university. I was in a university that had brought me, you know, I was in a good university because actually at home with my father, we didn't have a lot of money, but we had a lot of books and my father knew what to do with them. And I had really, you know, um, I had very good uh, values about education in my house without a lot of cultural capital or, or I don't want to say cultural capital, but I want to say like without a lot of capital capital, <laughs> you know, I was raised in a way that gave me the chance to uh, get into a school where a lot of kids did have come with both cultural and economic capital. And I realized that actually um, some of them were in positions to expose me to art, to books, to food, to travel, to notions of, you know, of, of manners that could actually be world opening to me. Not that I had to simply mimic them, but that they, they knew some things that I hadn't seen and, and, and they could show me things. And, you know, in some ways, once I got more confident, I realized that there was plenty that I could show them too. But that's what kind of cultural exchange is, 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 is realizing that you don't have all the answers already. And so in that, in that milieu, I was really excited by somebody saying, well, oh, but if you like that, would you, 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 you would probably like the Brothers Karamazov or Thomas Pynchon or something like that. And oh, I hadn't heard of that because that wasn't what my father emphasized. But I do realize that my father always did have a stack of New Yorkers and Harpers and the New York Review of Books and stuff on his desk, and I hadn't paid attention to that. But I see you're reading that here, and I realized that a lot of it wasn't that I didn't that I was completely starting from scratch or erasing myself. It was that I realized that a lot of things that my parents had tried to actually give me, um, I had closed myself off to. I'd preemptively closed myself off to because I had assumed that wasn't, they were just eccentric or that wasn't really relevant to the community that I, or the tribe that I believed that I was um, fated to have to belong to. So in, in, in university, I actually opened myself up to some things that were already supposed to have been there. 
um, if that makes sense. And so then it actually allowed me to just like draw closer to who I actually was in some ways and who I was supposed to be. But I had I, in some ways thinking that I was um, ensconcing myself in my tribe, I had actually deviated from from some aspects of myself that were that were closer to me than than this group that supposedly spoke for me. Mm. I'm interested in that role of philosophy uh, in that process, because I think you and I share that in common to an extent. My mother was not a scholar, uh, as your father is, but she had that perhaps working class naivety that conflates um, education with information. Mm-hmm. But there was an incredibly strenuous focus on achievement academically and education. So I ended up going to a good university, despite the fact that nothing statistically predicted that I should be able to do that. And I also made the stupid, uh, mad decision to major in philosophy the same way that you did, consequently bringing home no money (laughs) on the basis uh, of my mother's labours and or investment in me. But did studying philosophy help you to understand that unraveling that was occurring? I think so. I mean, it helped me to understand that was another way in which there was a real choice to be made to do something that felt truer to myself than what was expected of me based on the group. So most people I was around of any ethnicity at a place like Georgetown were going to go into some form of um, lucrative professional work, like uh, plenty were going to become um, people who worked in finance and things like that in private equity, and probably at a school like that, even more were going to become management consultants and lawyers. Probably the most, most of them were going to go to law school, even the ones who majored in philosophy. Um, no one wanted to be writers. That was really a school where very few people aspired to be novelists or, or journalists, even. Um, and so I felt that I needed to study economics and finance and try to be a banker too, until I started taking those classes. And you know, I just compared them to the joy that I got out of my intro to ethics class and my art history class and some other courses that really spoke to me on a deeper level, just spoke to who I was and who I wanted to give myself permission to be. And I think that you know, just like on that very fundamental level, not even getting into the content of the of the classwork, just the exposure to the joy of that type of thinking and reading and, and also the kind of, you know, I did better in my philosophy classes than I did in my economics classes. So that kind of affirmation that, uh, that there were ways of being smart that, you know, seemed to fit with my personality, that just kind of reinforced this desire for me to do that and then to see where it would take me. But it was really scary and it wasn't until after like graduate school, it wasn't until after I graduated and decided what to do for graduate school that I really kind of faced up to the fact that I was going to have to figure out how to make a career as opposed to have this kind of preordained route that a lot of my friends were able to take for granted by by getting an MBA or a JD. Mm-hmm. I think what philosophy does for people in general, if if they apply themselves to it and, and of course they enjoy it, as you say, is kind of um, impart the ability to take apart the machine of thought and look at the requisite bits and put it back together again, which is something that you do a lot in your books, um, a lot. People often, when I talk about philosophy, uh, they ask what the benefit is of studying it. And I think it's, it's definitely not monetary. Um <laughs> 
I think it's probably immaterial, but is it something you kind of still find yourself utilizing and that has changed your worldview? Well, I think philosophy, you know, I really loved the um, logic classes and I really loved, you know, ethics courses. And in basically any of the courses that I was involved in, you had to make arguments and you had to, you know, you had to refute arguments and you had to um, think about whether arguments and positions uh, and worldviews were compelling or not. Uh, and, and, and I think that that's the work of a writer whether you call yourself a philosopher or not, you know, uh, I find that rhetorically it really helps. I find that, you know, in terms of thinking and, and building, building, constructing arguments, I can't think of um, a better training for that um, than, than a philosophical one. And so, you know, my father, uh, he's a sociologist by training, but I think he's really a missed philosopher. He, he would have preferred to be a philosopher, but I think that he, he was already making a big leap from where he came from to be an academic of any sort. And I think that philosophy was just, probably for him, it felt too indulgent, but that's what he passionately would be reading on his own. And for him, he always refers to me as a philosopher. He doesn't, he doesn't want to really think of me as a journalist or even as a writer or an essayist. He, he thinks I'm a philosopher and I'll always say, well, no, you know, and I didn't do the work that other people have done and I haven't gotten the PhD. And his argument is always that that's not what makes a, that's what, that's certification. That's not what makes a philosopher. And, you know, I kind of, it makes me self-conscious, but in, in, in a way he's right, you know, I feel like philosophy is an approach to life and, and it's, it's a way of, you know, it's a way of forming worldviews. And, and that's, you know, that's the kind of, that's the kind of business that I'm involved in. And, um, I think that, you know, formulating a worldview starts with trying to understand yourself. I mean, it goes back to the basics of philosophy, know thyself, you know, and that's always been what's been, what's, what's really spoken to me about the discipline. Do you think it's made you braver to an extent? In that I think generally philosophy can be used for evil as much as for good. And I know several stupid people with philosophy PhDs, as I'm sure you do. <laughs> but it generally allows you to explore the contours charitably, mm -hmm. uh, if you wish to, uh, if you're willing to put the effort in, um, mm -hmm. of views that you don't agree with. So when you were in preparation, when you were working on self-portrait, and readying this view that you wanted to share about race as someone who, as you've kind of pointed out, isn't allowed to think this. Do you think your background and philosophy helped you to have the confidence to know that you could deal with what you were going to get? <laughs> well, y yes and no. I mean, I think that I gravitated towards philosophy because there's a part of my personality that... Um, really enjoys and is even probably on some level excited by argumentation. It's the way that I was raised in my household. You know, my father is a very formidable arguer, very opinionated, and my brother is too, although he's um, autodidact. But you would have to really defend even simple statements like it's nice outside could really get challenged in my household in a way that I think there was nothing could be taken for granted. No one would just let you get away with an opinion. And that seems normal to me. You know, I think a level of contentiousness that horrifies my wife is, is normal and is not even 
worth remarking on. And, you know, I'm partially interested in writing because I think, I think that a writer basically is motivated by the feeling that it's not like this, it's like this. Uh, and, and, you know, if everybody agreed with the way I saw things, it would be a very different kind of work for me and it wouldn't really be very uh, interesting. So I think part of this doesn't come from what I studied, it comes from just an aspect of my personality that also is very comfortable being contrarian, um, isn't really upset by people critiquing and likes to critique others. I think I am surprised in some ways by, um, I guess I'm surprised by how uh, so many people seem to think that disagreement means that you cannot, uh, um, if you disagree about certain conclusions or ideas that you cannot have, um, uh, charitable interactions in other ways. You cannot have like a good faith, uh, agree to disagree, um, benefited out, extended to each other, that you have to actually consider each other um, members of rival camps and even enemies. I, I think that's what surprises me. I think d vehement disagreement doesn't really stop me from still having a kind of, you know, no hard feelings. Uh, aspect of the interaction that I think Twitter really disincentivizes. And, and I, I'm continually surprised by, by the acrimony that is brought to intellectual and political discourse. I'll never probably get used to that. Why do you think that is? Because that you won't get used to it, I mean. Oh, well, I was going to say, why is that type of disagreement there? I've recently started to think that it has to do with the fact that so many of our ideas and positions and views are caught up with um, what we think is our identity. And so when someone disagrees with you, it's not that they're disagreeing with your ideas, it's that on some level, a lot of us have come to feel that they're, they're not saying the idea is wrong, they're saying that you are wrong because you are synonymous with your idea because that, your worldview is your identity and you're supposed to think through your epidermis or your gender or whatever. I think this has been really bad for, for a kind of thinking. Um, it's made us hypersensitive too. Why do you think you're continually surprised by the acrimony, given that there's been such a hefty quantity of it? Well, because, you know, I think that I, I really have a faith in the power of dispassionate reason. I, 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 I think I really want to believe that uh, um, people are persuadable. Uh, I find myself, you know, I'm somebody who has, I think, changed my mind. In my first two books, I chronicle two, two massive uh, shifts in perspective and changes in, va changes in values. Uh, so I think of myself as somebody who, when the facts change or when, when um, the reality or context around me seems to change, I'm, I'm happy to reevaluate my whole worldview, even my whole sense of self. And I kind of assume that other people could be too, and I think that I'm continuously surprised and disappointed with how rigid. <laughs> I don't mean to say, like, I feel like that's too self-flattering, and I don't mean to come across that way. I just think that people are more, or maybe a lot of people are less willing to change their mind, uh, and I just take for granted that um, that's just something that you do, and I'm not mm -hmm. married to positions in the same way. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also, changing your mind is incredibly difficult. Um, if you're surrounded by people who maintain 
any kind of consensus. There's just no... There's no room for deviation, yeah. There's no reason to even pursue it uh, or or to find out, sort of, to cross-check the presumptions that uh, you'll take for granted, which, as you say, is so depressing. But my guess is also kind of just synonymous with the human condition. We are pretty complacent (laughs) a lot of the time. Well, yeah, and and I, and I certainly am too. I'm not like uh, I, I feel like a lot of the conclusions I'm coming to in this conversation are too self uh, complimentary. <laughs> um, some people would say that you know you know tradition and consensus and community are are, are things that allow individuals to be rooted and to find a larger wisdom than just the whims of individual preference and and mood swing or whatever and you know i'm 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 certainly sensitive to that position but i think that what a lot of us are engaged in doing especially online is just um uh is not well thought out it's just um you know seeing which direction the wind is blowing and kind of you know going along with that because it's because it is easier and because it releases a certain amount of dopamine when you when you participate in this larger process and you're considered to be right by 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 the sources of judgment that matter to you i mean you know these these platforms have hijacked our 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 brain chemistry in in a way that i think is really uh, not conducive to self-critique and I'm guilty of this too, in a different way, because you know, when you do, you can be successful uh, at the contrarian position where it can be reflexive, not well thought out, and you can just go, you know, if you have the right, if you have enough followers or whatever, if you just go against things that might, in fact, be true or might be more nuanced than your skepticism merits, you can get quite a lot of dopamine for doing that too. So, I mean, I think that we're just in a in, in a situation where the best thinking isn't incentivized on these platforms. That I'm that I'm that I'm stuck using too. Mm-hmm. I guess in that sense, it it is in a way comfortingly familiar in that you're essentially describing um, a newspaper column, which is a reactive platform for kind of being in high dudgeon and getting everyone annoyed, uh, just <laughs> on an exponentially larger scale. With less with less editing, fact checking, or pushback. Yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a very optimistic. Um, I don't know how much editing or fact checking happens anymore that's within true. newspapers. Um, so so you mentioned earlier that uh, moving to France allowed you to kind of shift the paradigm in terms of the identity that was being reflected back at you by the world that you were in, and obviously. James Baldwin did the same thing and he made the same observation. And I know this is kind of an annoying question and I would be annoyed if anyone asked me this about somebody I admire because I don't think you can be proprietary when it comes to people who are dead. And, you know, I often hear people say things like um, Christopher Hitchens would be so anti-woke if he was here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the answer is maybe, maybe he wouldn't. Who knows what he would be. But what do you think would be Baldwin's assessment of where we are now? Well, we know that he left us with a lot of um, contradictory viewpoints. Um, he had different phases of his career. I'm most in love with the early and mid Baldwin. Uh, I prefer that uh, most of the time to the later Baldwin, although I have love for all the phases. I think the later Baldwin was really um, 
feeling a lot of pressure from Eldridge Cleaver and other more radical writers who were basically calling him um, an elitist who was very comfortable in Europe around whites. And so he felt the need to um, disavow, or if not disavow, contradict some of his earlier um, points about the fact that uh, black and white um, distinctions like that are delusions and that, you know, it's what is going to get us to transcend racial division is going to be love, things like that. He's, he, you know, I think that uh, it, it depends which bald you're talking about. The bald one that has won out is kind of a precursor to Ta-Nehisi Coates and some of the writers we have today who took a more, a more angry tone and potentially a more pessimistic tone. Um, that's certainly also a true Baldwin. So it's hard to say exactly what he would think today. I think that it's highly likely that he would have, uh, in today's parlance, a searing critique of the continuing injustice that clearly um, is still such a part of our societies. But I like to believe that there's a part of Baldwin that cannot be forgotten and that is very much an authentic part of him that would mean that he would be highly skeptical about the kind of um, essentializing thinking that reproduces the very categories it would seem to seek to counteract. The kind of thinking that says that, you know, the kind of white fragility thinking that's caught on that says that, you know, white people all participate in an idea, identity that means, you know, certain things, certain values, certain judgments can be applied to all the individuals. I think that Baldwin would be too sophisticated to buy into that kind of thinking. I think he would have too sophisticated uh, an understanding of the way the world works to ever think that all policy, all ideas, all actions could be reduced to a binary of racist or anti-racist. Um, I think that he would find a lot of the writing on race in America today to be woefully provincial because, um, you know, one of the things that he was so eloquent about was the fact that, you know, when you leave America, you find that other people fulfill roles that um, you thought were, you know, the property of black people in different societies and that, you know, you have quite a lot in common with white Americans when you're both foreigners in Europe. I mean, he had really eloquent things to say about the, in his um, view, insurmountable differences between black Americans and blacks from other parts of the world. And, and the idea that there was a kind of monolithic blackness, he rejected that. The idea there was a monolithic whiteness, that's what I mean by saying that blacks and whites from America had more in common than they had with Europeans or Africans in France. I mean, I, I think he was a highly sophisticated thinker. So my bet would be that he would surprise a lot of people who think that they speak in his name now. Um, I really do believe that. Um, my feeling is that Hitchens would also be highly critical of the kind of group think of wokeness. But you know, you're right. It, it, it's always um, a fool's errand trying to say that you can be sure what a thinker from a previous era would think about the contemporary scene, especially when that thinker has, you know, been so brilliant at, uh, at being contrarian and surprising people. Yeah. I mean, I obviously I, I broke my own rules by asking the question because you can't resurrect a deceased person and use them as a tool for a current war. But I was interested in Baldwin in particular because he is one of those figures that kind of breaches both sides. And depending on where you want to dip into his lexicon, you can use a version of him to defend yeah. <laughs> yeah, to defend numerous worldviews. We've hit an hour. That was great. I really enjoyed that conversation. 
It went fast. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I feel I have this uh, like nagging feeling that I never quite said uh, the answers in the way that you m most were hoping to hear. No, no, no not at all. No, uh, what, what I wanted was whatever you wanted to give. I mean, my aim with this is just to embrace nuance. So uh, to be honest, the fuckier and more indirect the conversation, the better as far as I'm concerned. Not cool. that it was, but, but um, everything is too clear and direct right now anyway, which is to say completely opaque and nonsensical. Thanks for listening to Second Self. This podcast was edited by Billy Adamson and JJ Hadari. Music was written by Team.